Welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Chaney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Chaney Galuzzi and Howard LLC, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, executive committee, and legislative committee. I also serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors, the CBA Executive Committee, and the CBA Young Lawyers Division Executive Council. Finally, I'm also a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. If you're interested in learning any more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. With that, let's jump right in. I'm really excited uh, for our guest today. Uh, he's a friend of mine and uh, you know a great legal mind, uh, John Gleason. Uh, John Gleason. John practices, emphasizes legal and medical ethics, regulatory and administrative matters, as well as standard of care in legal matters and ethics issues in business or government. He served as regulation counsel for the Colorado Supreme Court from 1999 until his retirement in 2013. As regulation counsel, he managed an office of the Supreme Court responsible for the regulation of Colorado attorneys and magistrates. He also served as director of regulatory services for the Oregon State Bar from 2013 to 2014. Mr. Gleason served as counsel for the Supreme Court's Attorneys Fund for Client Protection, State Board of Law Examiners, and Special Counsel for the Commission on Judicial Discipline. Prior to his work for the Supreme Court, he was in private practice with a law firm in Denver for several years. In 2013, the American Bar Association Center for Professional Responsibility selected Mr. Gleason for the Michael Frank Award. The Frank Award is the highest honor bestowed annually to one recipient whose career commitments in legal ethics and lawyer professionalism demonstrate the best accomplishments of lawyers. In 2013, the Arizona Supreme Court selected Mr. Gleason for the court's Award of Merit for his work as independent bar counsel in the prosecution and disbarment of former Maricopa District Attorney Andrew Thomas. The widely publicized case is regarded as one of the most significant lawyer discipline cases in history. Mr. Gleason is admitted in all Colorado state and federal courts and the United States Supreme Court. Mr. Gleason is on inactive and good standing status with the, with the Oregon Supreme Court. Mr. Gleason is an adjunct professor of law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. He is active in local community affairs and is on the board of directors for a metropolitan youth sports organization. He is also an honorably discharged veteran. In August 2015, the ABA Center appointed Mr. Gleason as chair of the ABA CPR Policy Implementation Committee. The Policy Implementation Committee focuses on implementation of recent revisions to the model rules of professional conduct and the model code of judicial conduct. The policies of the Multi-Jurisdictional Practice Commission and other models and policies developed by the ABA Center for Professional Responsibility. In April 2019, the Arizona Supreme Court appointed Mr. Gleason to assist the court in an independent review of the Arizona State Bar's regulatory and discipline system. And finally, Mr. Gleason is a member of the Justice Soda, Sonia Sotomayor in of court. And uh, with that uh, lengthy introduction, uh, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Pleasure to be here. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for coming on. And uh, I'd like to start today. So obviously our main topic is, is going to be ethics and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, things that I think are important for young lawyers and law students to understand about ethics. But uh, you've got a really fascinating uh, career path and, and kind of life. And so I'd kind of like to start there. Uh, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself a little bit uh, and, and tell us where you're from? You know, I, I'm originally from Ohio and um, when I got out of the military, I decided to be a cop. So I worked in the Toledo metro area for about five years and was recruited uh, then to the uh, Arapahoe County Sheriff's Department where I spent another six years. So I was a cop for about 12 years before I went to law school. 
And what uh, what made you want to be a cop? Was it something in the military or uh, was that something that you had you know considered doing even before you joined the military or, or what drew you to law enforcement? Um, I was just frankly happy not to be in jail um, after a <laughs> uh, somewhat tough um, high school and military career. But, um, you know, when I got out of the military, uh, the police departments around the country were hiring and there was a, essentially an opportunity there that, that I may not have had. I was going to Bowling Green State University at the time mm-hmm. uh, so I could work and go to school. And, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for young people. Um, ironically, one of the first things that happened to me after I started as a, uh, after I got out of uniform and was promoted uh, up as a detective, uh, they needed volunteers for uh, bomb training. At the time, there was a very active, um, um, essentially the Irish and the Italians were killing each other in Toledo, Cleveland, uh, all around that area, and most of the time by some kind of bombing device. So they sent me to the Redstone Arsenal in Alabama for about six months to learn from the um, uh, the German and the Israeli uh, bomb squad guys. So to make a very long story short, I became, uh, as well as a detective, and at the time I was working in the major crimes unit uh, in Ohio, and also as one of the first bomb techs um, in the state of Ohio. What Just as a kind of introduction to that, prior to that, the military provided whatever resources were necessary. And under the Posse Comitatus Act, uh, they were then precluded from assisting civilian authorities with any kind of explosive devices. So the large departments around the country needed to train somebody to do all of this stuff. And I was, um, I guess at the time, stupid enough to volunteer and they sent me down there and uh, so I worked there as and created the bomb squad the metropolitan bomb squad in that end of Ohio and then um, and actually were pretty active in dealing with devices um, in the Cleveland Toledo area and then and, and across the border up into Detroit and that end of Michigan because there are very few of us trained in that regard um, and I was then recruited to uh, Rappel County Sheriff's Department in uh, of course, the suburbs of Denver at the time, they were hiring, I don't know, like 100 or 200 uh, uniformed officers. And I was one of those. Um, almost immediately, I was out of uniform and ended up working on the major crimes unit, primarily homicide. Um, also created the, at the time, it was a Denver uh, Arapaho bomb squad. It was the first bomb squad um, in the metropolitan area. Uh, now Denver has an elite bomb squad, Repo County, probably equal to Denver. So the one that, that we created at the time continues to exist and um, handles a lot of calls. So the good news is I still have all of my appendages and um, took apart a lot of, uh, of tough devices, met a lot of good lawyers uh, who were defending the bombers around the area. So that's... Um, and after doing that uh, and working homicide for about five or six years, that was enough. Um, I decided that, um, you know, you become cynical and a little paranoid doing that kind of work. Uh, I had handled uh, what I thought were some you know, horrible homicides and I uh, decided that I wanted to do something else. So I actually applied to the FBI Academy and was admitted to the FBI Academy, and I was dating my wife now of almost 39 years at the time, and she was smart enough to say to me, I'm not going to marry a cop. So <laughs> there with the FBI Academy, I went to law school. Nice, law school. nice. Yeah, so there you go. That's my, that's my career uh, before law school. Do you think, I mean, what a fascinating job. I can't imagine the the amount of stress that you're under, you know, in a bomb situation where you're, you're trying to defuse it. Do you think that the skills that you learned there uh, have transitioned to your, you know, legal career? Um, and and if so, in kind of what way? You know, it's kind of interesting when I watch TV or I watch uh, something about Bomb Squad. My experience, um, and we only had a couple of very close calls. And we had some pretty sophisticated uh, bombers. Um, 
uh, one of the one of the better criminal defense lawyers in Denver, a uh, longtime criminal defense lawyer, uh, Craig Truman. Actually, that's where I met Craig. He represented one of the more sophisticated bombers um, who I was involved with. Um, you know, I think that um, what that provided to me, maybe more than anything, was uh, the ability to focus very quickly on, I guess, number one, survival um, and the survival of, of people around you, because generally you were not doing this in isolation. You were doing it in a bank lobby um, or in, in something like that, where uh, at a liquor store, wherever they were, uh, right. whatever they were sticking up at the time. So, yeah, I think it did. You know, it helped me be able to focus very quickly and to, I think, maybe um, have a, a good idea on um, how to deal with people. Um, I dealt with people in, probably at the worst times of their lives when I was working uh, as a police officer, sure. particularly in the, in the homicide unit. When you, uh, so you met your wife and, and, and she smartly uh, kind of uh, inspired a uh, career change uh, for you. Um, had you thought about law school prior to that? Was that ever, um, you know, in the back of your mind as maybe something you would be interested in or was that really just kind of a spur of the moment decision when, you know, you found out that, uh, you know, the FBI, you know, may not be the path for you. You know, I had the good opportunity, Kevin, of meeting some great, great, um, lawyers, uh, when I was a cop, uh, you know, a lot of cops, particularly, um, uh, uniform cops have kind of a level of disdain for lawyers that I never quite understood. I, I appreciated what they did and I admired what they did. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, homicide cops and people who are working at that level of policing generally have a very good relationship with, uh, the DA's office and also with the, uh, with the defense lawyers um, who you're up against because you see the same people time after time. So, you know, I saw what they were doing and I saw how they did it. I admired uh, people like Ethan Feldman, uh, who is still, a, I think, a judge in Littleton, retired Rappo County judge. Uh, he was one of the DAs who I worked with for uh, years and years. So as I would, part of my policing was um, learning the law and, I take great pride in the fact that in almost 12 years of policing, I never had a suppression hearing successful. So I did, I did my job the way it was supposed to be done and never had any evidence suppressed. And that makes your job easier as a police officer and doing that kind of a job as a lawyer makes it a whole lot easier as well. Were you thinking uh, because of your experience as a police officer when you went to law school that criminal law was kind of where you wanted to be, whether that was prosecution or defense or uh, what was your kind of thinking and going to law school? You know, did you know you wanted to be a litigator or tell us a little bit about that? You know, that's a great, great question. I get that a lot, Kevin. And what it did was it it cemented in my mind that I never wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. <laughs> I, it was you know, the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I started law school, then oh goodness, you know, I I know everything there is to know about criminal law. Then I got a C in the course, and <clears throat> I thought, you know, for God, <laughs> God's sake, here's a cop with 12 years of experience. I get a C in a criminal law course. Um, so you know, I, I really, I after maybe the first year of law school, I thought, you know, there is so much out there to do. And so much of it was fascinating that I had very, very little interest in criminal law. And the, the first law firm that I worked for, uh, because I did some, uh, some appointments at the time, you know, the public defender's office, I'm not, I guess they existed, but in a, in a much smaller capacity. So you got appointed to criminal cases, you got appointed as GAL and other things. Sure. And my law firm that I worked for, I will tell you who it was, would not allow me to meet with my clients uh, during work hours. It was a very elite kind of, uh, <laughs> and they didn't want the, the lobby filled with my uh, criminal defense clients. So that was kind of a rude awakening, but um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I just thought there was so much uh, else to do. And I actually was working railroad law, if you can imagine that, and I loved it. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I just thought there are so many opportunities out there. You know, find what you want to. So I worked uh, for several years in private practice. And then I saw an advertisement for uh, the regulatory office at the Supreme Court and thought, 
good Lord, you know, this, this sounds a lot like what I did for many years. And uh, so I applied. And in 1987, I went to the Supreme Court offices and I stayed there until 2013, 20, over 27 years, as I recall. Now, is it set up? Was it set up then like it is today? And, and if not, let's, I guess let's start by talking about kind of how it was then. Uh, and then I think it'd be really interesting because, um, you know, they don't really teach you in law school. I mean, they teach you that you need to be ethical and they teach you that if you're not ethical, you can get in trouble, but there's no classes or anything that really tell you about how the system is set up and who investigates you and who rules on you. Um, so, uh, let's, I guess, start kind of back in that, the late eighties there and, and, and how was it set up at the time? Sure. It was a very different office then. Um, frankly, it was a um, relatively small office um, and with, with very specific jurisdiction. Now, there are two kinds of regulatory offices around the country. Mm-hmm. One is a state bar office like I worked in in Oregon for about a year and a half uh, after I retired from the court here in Colorado. The other office is a Supreme Court office where everything is done within the Supreme Court. Um, So law students are going to school in states where they don't have a Supreme Court office like Colorado. They're typically looking to the Bar Association for regulation and admission, Mm -hmm. registration. In Colorado, everything is one office, and that's right out of the Supreme Court. So at the time I was hired there in in 87, I'm sorry, um, relatively small office, uh, not that many cases, frankly, not very efficient, not very well. Uh, put together, well run, and the court, the court kind of sorted through that over the years, um, and we worked directly for the the seven justices. The, the major transition began in the mid '90s, and the system that we have today was created by former Chief Justice Mike Bender, mm-hmm. former Justice Becky Corliss, and me. Uh, there wasn't any other jurisdiction around the country that had it quite like we do. So now we have a system in place. Um, and I think at the height of, of um, my role as the head of the office for about 14 years, I think we had about 75 people in the office. Um, I, I'm not sure now how many are there. Uh, I think it, it, we had about 25 lawyers at one time, um, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, but now the, the regulatory process in Colorado is divided into two divisions, the intake division and the trial division. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have also the admissions process that is also part of the attorney regulation process. Um, so if you're a lawyer in Colorado and um, you get uh, a complaint filed against you, that complaint's going to go into the Supreme Court uh, office. It's going to start at the intake level. And you'll be assigned to a lawyer in the intake division who will do the investigation. Um, they're all good lawyers. Um, some are still there who I hired. And uh, the goal always is to get your case dismissed as quickly as you can to get out of that um, right. out of that system. It's not a system that you want to be in to start out with. Uh, but if you are, then the goal is to get out of it. What I say to people is, because I get a lot of questions from particularly young lawyers who find themselves with a complaint filed against them. The question is, you know, should I defend myself? And almost always my answer is no, it's a bad idea uh, because uh, you're emotionally wrapped up in it. And you, it, it's such a specialized area of practice, Kevin, that, and there are really very few of us who do it uh, in Colorado. And, I'm edging closer to retirement every single day <laughs> as are two or three other people who do this. So, you know, it's an interesting area to get into. It's t- it's tough to break into it simply because it's so rule driven. It is so specific. And the one thing I will say to law students and to new lawyers, uh, and I always taught this in my class, there's only one law school class who you will, that, that you will use every single day of your practice. And it's professional responsibility. Yep. Every time you take in a client, every time you have an issue, you're going to be thinking, okay, what do the rules of professional conduct say? Um, so it's a really critical class, and it's a really critical aspect of being a lawyer, a good understanding of what the rules are. 
so my, you know, and, and I'm happy to chat with people. I don't charge them to talk uh, through minor I issues. And uh, if I think they can handle it by themselves, I'll tell them that. Uh, so the other lawyers who do this, none of us are looking for business. So if we think a lawyer can handle it and it's going to be dismissed at intake, that's what happens. <clears throat> if it's not dismissed at intake, it goes to the trial division. Um, you can get out of the system one of about four different ways. Uh, straight up dismissal. In other words, the complaint had no merit. Sure. And it's dismissed straight out. Second is a diversion. A diversion is not discipline. It's essentially like you would have in a criminal case uh, where minor issue, uh, send you to a couple of classes and you don't come back into the system. Um, and uh, the other alternative is that it's sent to the trial division and there you're in the formal complaint process. Now, in the intake area, it's, it's confidential. There's, I mean, anybody can talk about it, but um, my former office, uh, which is the Office of Attorney Regulation Council or OARC, right. OARC cannot talk about it because it's, it's confidential at that level for them. But, you know, the person who filed the complaint or the lawyer can talk about it all they want. Sure. Um, so that's, um, that's kind of the division. It's, a, um, it's like any other civil matter that, that you may have um, with a little bit of, of criminal due process mixed in it. So if there's a formal complaint, in other words, if it's not dismissed, if you don't have a diversion, if you're not going to get out of the system quickly and you're going to end up in a formal proceeding, then you, you know they're going to dig their heels in and you dig your heels in. And it's like any other jury trial. Uh, Colorado has a presiding disciplinary judge, uh, Bill Lucero. Um, he's been on the bench there for probably about, let's say, 12, maybe 12, 15 years. Um, it's a good system. It's a, you know, he's like any other district court judge. Um, he rules on all the motions, uh, discovery issues, whatever you would have in a civil case. But it kind of looks like, in some aspects, a criminal case, um, the way that the Fifth Amendment, Amendment applies, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, you go to trial in front of a, essentially a three-person jury, uh, including the presiding disciplinary judge, and then two other individuals appointed out of a hearing panel approved by the Supreme Court. And that may be another lawyer, retired judge, uh, member of the public, um, could be you know one of um, a trial I just had included a lawyer from the Western Slope uh, as a juror, and a um, lawyer who works in the federal government area as a juror, along with uh, the presiding judge. And the sanctions range from private admonition, public admonition, suspension. Suspension can range from less than a year, uh, anything over one year. And that's why you'll see a suspension for a year and a day. Mm -hmm. Anything over a year, one year requires reinstatement, which, of course, adds another huge dimension on to um, a lawyer. Um, and then you have disbarment. Disbarment is for a minimum of eight years. Uh, you can reapply after eight years, but, and, and many lawyers do, uh, or former lawyers do. You have to sit through the bar exam, do everything just like you're a new admittee if you get disbarred. Um, so most of my cases, um, you know, I go to trial, I'm going to say about a lot more than civil lawyers do and a lot more than criminal defense lawyers do. Uh, because, so, and I also represent physicians and nurses and others in the medical area as well. So we have a uh, kind of a smattering of cases from the Department of Regulatory Agencies through the medical board. Um, most of my practice is in the area of, of lawyer regulation and lawyer defense. So I'd like to ask you a little bit so in, in our system, we have basically professional lawyers who are, you know, whose job is to investigate and prosecute claims. Is that so I know you talked about how there's two different systems. There's, you know, kind of the one under the Supreme Court and then there's one under the Bar Association. Do pretty much all states now have professional attorneys whose job it is to investigate and prosecute? Or is there a, a, another way of kind of setting that up? No, you're right. The vast majority of states are have a similar um, 
professional staff as Colorado does. Uh, these are career positions. That's, and that's, again, another great question. One of the main changes that we, that we made, um, Justice Bender, Justice Corliss, and I and my uh, predecessor, we looked at making it a career job because we had some part-time people and we needed people who wanted to make this a career. And because again, it's a very specialized area of law. Right. And we wanted, if you're going to investigate and prosecute lawyers, then you better be a good lawyer yourself. Um, so, you know, it was always my requirement that, that whomever I fired, fired, hired, I'm sorry, hired, <laughs> had to have, uh, had to have at least five years of civil practice. Uh, because we were in a civil-based system, and I wanted the lawyers to have that kind of background because they're making decisions about other lawyers. And if you have a year or two in the practice, you don't have a real good grasp on how difficult it is to represent clients, particularly in today's world. And um, that's something else I'll, I'll talk about a little bit later. Well, and so I think that's kind of a, a great segue. So now that we've kind of explained... Um, the system and kind of how it's set up. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about common ethical issues that you see arise, um, obviously, as your time uh, as a prosecutor and now as someone who defends people who are accused. Um, what are a few of the uh, biggest issues that that get lawyers uh, into trouble? You know, I, uh, I was fortunate enough to have judge at the time, now Justice Gorsuch, as uh, my ethics uh, professor, and uh, he made it uh, incredibly entertaining, and it was really just a really fun class. And you know, he would be like, "You guys, if I, uh, you know, uh, I've taught you anything in this class, here's a few rules. You know, don't don't sleep with clients, don't commingle or mess with your trust account, and keep a good um, accounting, and never sue your client uh, for an unpaid bill." And he was like, and if you do those three things, you probably are never going to be in too much trouble. So yeah, I, I, I think he went to my class that I taught before he taught it. Because that's pretty, <laughs> pretty much how I taught it. Um, you know, there are some, some very basic issues that tend to get lawyers in trouble. You know, in today's world with social media the way it is, if you get crosswise of a client, everybody's going to know about it. It's going to be all over social media. I defend... Uh, probably 10 lawyers a year uh, because they have written some kind of a horrible response back to a client or somebody else. My, my recommendation is, number one, if you're a law student, don't have social media because the admissions folks are going to look, comb through your social media to see what you've been doing. Uh, it's fair game. So what I tell, always told my uh, law students was get out of social media until you have to be in it uh, because sure. it's going it's going to cause you problems in the admissions area if you're not careful. Um, you know what? There's a number that I uh, usually testify as an expert, and I testify to the fact that that in my now 35 years, over 50,000 complaints against lawyers came across my office, and the judge looked at me and I said, "No, that's it's accurate. 50,000 complaints." You can do the math. Uh, so I, I keep thinking I've seen everything there is to see, and then I see something <laughs> new. But, you know, the basics are, first of all, as a new lawyer, as a young lawyer, spend the money to get malpractice coverage and make sure that your malpractice coverage has disciplined defense in it. It is absolutely essential in today's world. Um, I see lawyers who are buying malpractice coverage and they don't ask about discipline defense. It, it rarely costs more. The minimum discipline defense is about 25,000. Um, you just absolutely have to have that because of the uh, prolific uh, filing of complaints by, uh, by your clients. I mean, they know the system's out there. It's well advertised. It's very efficient. And so it's and very easy to file a complaint. And so discipline defense coverage, just so I make sure uh, that I understand and our listeners understand, that's uh, basically coverage that will hire you a lawyer like yourself or one of your colleagues to defend you in the bar disciplinary process. So even if you're not sued for malpractice, if you're grieved and you kind of get into that system, that, ins that insurance coverage will pay for uh, an attorney uh, to represent you and defend you. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And there's no deductible on it. 
Um, it typically does not adversely impact your coverage. It's there because it helps the insurance company. If they can um, adequately defend you, or if I can, on the grievance, it makes any kind of a malpractice action pretty much go away. Sure. So insurance, insurance companies have a vested interest in doing uh, hiring somebody and to defend you in that. So discipline defense, just look for it in your coverage and it will save you all kinds of headaches in the future. That's excellent advice. And I, I did not even know that was a thing. And I, uh, I personally look at my own malpractice coverage and, you know, I knew about, you know, trying to get, uh, you know, defense costs separate from like the total policy. Uh, but I honestly did not know that was a thing. And uh, you can be darn sure after this episode, I'm going to be checking out my policy. So that is really good advice, guys. <laughs> be great time, uh, great timing to do that. And uh, it's really critically important. A couple of other things um, that get, get young lawyers in trouble, money. Um, you know, they're a great lawyer, but they can't handle money. They can't hand the, handle the business end of being a lawyer. And that's that will get you disbarred or suspended so quickly that uh, you, you don't even see it coming. Um, so there are there's really no middle ground when you're dealing with a trust account or an operating account or client's money. And you've got you've got to do it well. You've got to do it right. Now the Supreme Court has provided to you um, templates for flat fees, templates for contingency fees. Look at them or have someone help you craft, you know, the contingency fee that's in the, uh, now the template in the rules is a very basic one. I think there are some things you need to add into that to protect yourself. Uh, get somebody who does this kind of work like Kevin or somebody who is familiar with PI work uh, or flat fee work. Uh, there's no such, a, no such thing as um, uh, a fee that's earned prior to work. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of new elements of, of flat fees that you have to be aware of. You have to have mile, mile posts um, in every fee agreement now. In other words, you're going to earn 20% when you do this, 20% when you earn that, 20% when you do this. Um, so you have those mile posts in there to tell the client, I've done this now, I've earned the money, and it comes out of trust. So accounting, bookkeeping, um, is unfortunately an essential part of, of the practice. Um, client relations, uh, Kevin talked about one. Uh, my law firm has a policy of not suing clients for not paying. Um, you can almost guarantee a malpractice action or some kind of a retaliatory action when you're trying to sue a client for fees. So learn to get, get the fee up front, recognize that uh, when the case is over, there's very little incentive for a client to want to pay you. Um, and um, you learn very quickly how to better estimate the time that it's going to take, the level of, of expertise it's going to take. And if you have a client who can't pay and it's not a pro bono case, and about 25% of the cases I do are pro bono, so I encourage that, but you've got to make a living. So you estimate the fee if the client can't pay it. Send them to another lawyer. It's going to be nothing but problems for you. You've got to you've got to pay the rent. You've got to pay salaries, and you've got to pay yourself. Um, so that's a critical part of learning to be a lawyer. The one other thing I want to say is find a mentor. Nothing, nothing any more important. Long, young lawyers division, the, the CBA, any organization you can get into, get into it because um, having a mentor, having someone who you can call and ask about. You know, what do I do here? I, I had the great fortune of having all the former DAs who I met as a police officer and as a homicide cop who I could call for 10 years and say, you know, you have any idea about this particular pleading? How do I do this? Um, how do you do an interpleader action? All kinds of questions that I had no idea what the answer was. I could pick up a phone and call somebody. That's just so important for young lawyers. And you develop that in law school and you carry that into the practice. That's awesome that you brought that up. Um, Rick, our sound guy, uh, knows this, um, but uh, I, I I really love kind of pulling through these same themes um, in uh, in all of the episodes. And I would say I think in at least I would say almost I would actually probably say every single episode we've shot uh, that has been my advice. You know, starting my firm uh, right after admission. 
Um, it was essential to have mentors. And to this day, I have dozens of people that I consider my mentors and, and in different areas. You know, I've got people that I can call for a personal injury question, people I can call for a criminal question, uh, people that I can call for how to run a business type question. Um, I remember very early on in the practice, I, I sent you an email um, asking about thank you gifts for referrals and, you know, whether I could give, you know, send someone a bottle of wine um, for the referral. Uh, at the time, that was a, a no-no. I do think they actually amended that rule to allow, you know, uh, you know, not significant monetary items, but small little thank you cards or little tokens of the appreciation. But before that, they hadn't. And, you know, that was something that people had sent me thank yous. And so, but I was like, you know, I was reading the rule and I was like, you know, it doesn't sound like I can do this. Uh, so I remember emailing you and you were like, yeah, that's a no, no, you know, and just cause other lawyers are doing it. Don't, don't do that. Um, and so, yeah, you're a hundred percent right. And I'm really glad you say that because I think, you know, one of the biggest pieces of advice that I've ever gotten and, and that I try to give to, you know, I'm still a young lawyer, but younger lawyers and law students, uh, is mentors are everything. Mentors are just so important to, uh, the practice of law. They really are. And you know what? Uh, I represent about, I'm going to say, 15 law firms now. And my colleague in the firm, Alec Rothrock, probably represents 15 or 20 law firms. I'm kind of like a pediatrician's office. Um, I just take kind of one call after another uh, <laughs> from law lawyers who are in the firm. And I really think that, you know, if you're going to create mentors, find someone who knows ethics and can um, help you because, I, you know, I, I don't know, not a day or two goes by that I don't have a question about, you know, I have to sort out this conflict for a client. So um, get hooked up with people who can help you and you're not spending uh, your nights laying there awake worrying about something that, that you don't know the answer to. There's somebody out there who does know the answer. And I have never, I've never had a lawyer say to me, you know what, I'll send you a bill or uh, I'm, I don't take calls like this or I don't have the time to help you. Right. 35 years of practice, I've never, nor have I ever told a lawyer that or would I ever tell a lawyer that. Um, you know, my view is if they're calling you for help, then you give it to them. But uh, mentoring, getting into organizations uh, like young lawyers, um, that is just such an important part of growing into the practice. And I will tell you what you did and what Tim, your partner, did starting a law firm right out of law school, I, I don't think I ever could have done it. And now I look at you as a successful lawyer and for all the law students who are um, coming up and uh, want to do this on their own, uh, you're a great guy, a great mentor to look to for that. And, you know, the, the ability to get a clerkship or to get an internship at a law firm mm -hmm. is, is also incredibly helpful. I mean, we always have, I don't know, it seems like probably 10 interns or law clerks uh, right. wandering around the law firm and, you know, just walking up and down the hall for a for a clerk or for an intern is a learning experience. And you you get to, I think, develop a sense of how to deal with clients. Right. Um, because I have never met a client who wasn't difficult. <laughs> that's that's true. We have a we have a saying at my firm that clients are going to client. Uh, and you, you never know what they're going to do on, on any given day. And it, it keeps you on your toes. I do have one more question um, on this topic. Uh, so something that I, I think that a lot of young lawyers or law students kind of maybe struggle with is, you know, they get into uh, an area and they, they don't have a ton of ethics experience. They've taken ethics, they've taken the MPRE um, and they're, you know, working for a firm, you know, whether it's big, medium or small, and, and they get themselves into a situation where, um, you know, they're, they're concerned because, you know, their boss or somebody is telling them to do something, you know, X way. Um, but they're, you know, well, prime example, let's say, you know, prior to them changing the rule, it's, you know, sending a monetary thank you gift where they, you know, kind of feel like maybe this is not, you know, the most ethical thing to be doing, but I've kind of been instructed to do that by a superior or by a partner and says, that's how we always done it. Don't worry about it. Um, what advice do you give to people in that situation? You know, is that something they should you know, try to bring to their, their boss's attention, but they're, you know, worried about how that reaction is. Should they, you know, call the ethics hotline? Should they get an independent kind of a evaluation or, or how do you kind of work through that? All those suggestions are good. First of all, there, there's no, there's no defense um, 
uh, he, he or she told me to do it. Uh, it's your license and you're responsible for it. One of the requirements that I have for the law firms that I represent is that any lawyer in the firm can call me without a consequence. And that is incredibly helpful to the law firms. I have law firms with, I don't know, 30 or 40 or 50 lawyers mm -hmm. or 100 lawyers. And I have law firms with 10 lawyers or five lawyers. And that is so helpful having someone who you can call. Uh, you're a young lawyer. And, you know, it may be that, that you're working for someone who is my age, who's had 35 years of experience, but they've been doing it wrong for 35 years. Right, right. And then they teach you how to do it wrong or they tell you to do it wrong. Um, it doesn't work as a defense if you have a complaint filed against you. So I think what a, a young lawyer has to do is find someone who they can talk to to make sure that what they're doing is okay. Um, and if it's not okay, how do I resolve that problem? I mean, we do that in, in, in my law firm. We have a lot of young lawyers and uh, associates and clerks. Alec Rothrock's at one end of the, of the law firm. I'm at the other end of the law firm. <laughs> so they can walk either direction and, and get advice. Uh, and it works wonderfully because not you know, when, prior to COVID, not a week would go by that one of the clerks wouldn't come by and say, hey, um, you know, I was asked to do this and I want to make sure that I'm doing it correctly. And uh, so it's, a, it's really a huge advantage to have somebody who you can check with. Awesome. So for our, our last topic today, I, I want to move on uh, to your experience in Arizona. And as your bio uh, said that this was, uh, you know, one of the highest profile and one of the most important kind of uh, attorney regulation cases probably ever. Um, and I know I've talked about this with you before and, and, and you know, it's just a really kind of fascinating story. So uh, we've got about 10 minutes or so left. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how you ended up in Arizona and kind of, uh, you know, what the case uh, was about and just tell us a little bit about it. Well, it started actually in uh, 2009 and went all the way through to about 2013. I mean, it still lives with me because of the ramifications of it. We got a, I, I knew the Arizona Supreme Court because I had helped them with a couple of other issues. Sure. Former Chief Justice uh, Mary Malarkey got a call from uh, Chief Justice Birch in Arizona, and she said, we need help, and uh, we want um, Gleason to come down here and help us clean house, and so that was kind of the start of this saga that went on for years. Um, what, what happened, I took with me one of the best lawyers uh, who I ever worked with who worked for me was Jamie Sudler, and Jamie and I went down there uh, at the time, the Maricopa County District Attorney and several of the uh, deputy and chief deputy district attorneys um, were very uh, much a part of the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department and the uh, sheriff down there, Joe Arpaio. They had run roughshod over the judiciary, over the lawyers, uh, over anybody who got in their way. I mean, the allegations, the complaint that we filed, I think was 90 pages long. Wow. We spent, we spent about, um, I'm trying to think, about four or five, six months investigating. Um, the people were terrified. Uh, before I even arrived down there, we had a letter from Joe Arpaio saying, if you come down here, I'm going to put you in jail. So the, the uh, circumstances of going down there were... Um, exciting but terrifying and we were followed uh for months by uh undercover people for the uh the sheriff's department we were subjected to uh, continual harassment um by them but we had a job to do and um you're looking at the fourth largest county in the united states maricopa county enormous county and uh, we were taking on the elected district attorney of that, uh, of that county, along with several of his people in the DA's office. So we did their investigation, filed the complaint. Um, we, were, we moved hotels every couple, three nights. Uh, we changed our rental cars a couple times a week. Uh, we used drop phones because uh, we knew they were listening into our phone calls. So we, we bought uh, drop phones at Walgreens or Walmart. 
It's almost like a mob case. You know, it sounds like you were, you know, you were going up, except these were lawyers and law enforcement officers that had basically created almost like this cabal down in, in Maricopa County and where it just had scared everyone off. It was. It was really astonishing. I mean, the, the, the press was, uh, I mean, you can Google this and look at the press. Uh, we had, uh, when I did the opening uh, argument, which was uh, about two hours long, as I recall, um, the courtroom was packed. We had, I think that day we had over 15,000 people watching online. Wow. Uh, For an attorney regulation case. That's just I know. Real. It was, we were, we tried it in the Supreme Court, uh, courtroom in Arizona and it was packed. They had a couple of other rooms they were using for overflow. And, um, I mean, the, yeah, the videotape is still available. You can go to the uh, Arizona Supreme Court and look at it. And I think the the day that we opened, they had 16 lawyers on their side because we had joined all the cases together. So you had, I think there were a total of 16 lawyers in the courtroom for the defense and Jamie Suttler and me. <laughs> so the, the trial itself took uh, nine weeks. And... Um, I cannot begin to tell you. There are two other lawyers I want to mention. Alan Obi, who is at still at the Office of Attorney Regulation Counsel. Mm-hmm. Alan Obi is a brilliant young lawyer. Um, I took him there, uh, actually as a law clerk. And Marie Nakagawa. Maria is a lawyer for the, I think the Department of Transportation now. Another genius who put together all of our exhibits, all of our timelines, all of the things that we had to have to put on a case of that magnitude over the span of nine weeks with hundreds of exhibits, um, endless witnesses. I have no recollection of how many witnesses we ended up on over the span. And at the end of it, um, we disbarred Andrew Thomas, who was the sitting district attorney uh, at the time that we took on the case, um, Lisa Aubuchon, who was his chief deputy, and then we, uh, one other person who essentially was disbarred, she's never practiced law again. And I think there was uh, at least one other lawyer from the DA's office who was part of that discipline case. But um, I mean, I think the articles written about it were accurate at the time and probably still it's the most significant discipline case in the history of lawyer regulation. And what's very interesting is what we're seeing right now, um, uh, the lawyers who were actively defending Trump are now looking at the same kind of regulatory issues that Mr. Thomas was looking at. So it's kind of fascinating to see that come full circle uh, because somewhere the lawyers who engaged in in misconduct related to the election will ultimately uh, be in a lawyer regulation system. Yeah, I saw Lynn, uh, Lynn Wood uh, is uh, in down in Georgia is in some, some real hot water uh, you know, good advice for young lawyers uh, threatening to and, and, and publicly calling for the assassination of the vice president. Probably not the most ethical behavior. And you should not be shocked uh, when somebody uh, knocks on your door and has some questions about that. You hear the knock on your door. You know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good advice. Uh, don't don't threaten to kill anyone uh, publicly on your social media and uh, you know, you may stay out of uh, ethical uh, trouble. Well, John, thank you so much uh, for coming on uh, today. It was, uh, you know, we went back and forth with scheduling. You're a really busy guy, but uh, you were one of the first people that I thought would make a really great guest on here because, uh, you know, you have just a, a really interesting story, but also, you know, ethics are so important for uh, young lawyers and learning how to do things the right way and, and kind of learning about the system. Um, I like to end each episode uh, the same way. And, uh, you know, we've already talked about mentorship. Um, what is the best way if there's a law student or a young lawyer out there uh, who, you know, is wants to chat with you or has a you know qu- ethics question or uh, maybe might be interested? It seems like e- uh, ethics defense may be a good area of law to get into uh, because there's not a ton of lawyers. And Two of the, uh, you know, kind of best known ones are, are fairly close to retirement uh, in you and your uh, partner, uh, Mr. Rothrick. Um, so um, what's the what's the best way to get a hold of you? Like, what's your email? You know, um, I'm happy to talk to anybody. They can email me. It's very simple. Jay Gleason. So J-G-L-E-A-S-O-N at B-F-W-L-A-W dot com. 
So John, Jay Gleason at bfwlaw.com or just go to the Burns Figa website and uh, Burns Figa has been around for 40 years. So easy to find us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, John, uh, for coming on the podcast. Enjoy that lovely weather uh, down in Florida. And when this pandemic uh, finally is over, let's get a, a coffee or something. I'd love to catch up. I would up. love to. I, I'm honored that you asked me to do this. I'm, I'm happy to do this. Good to see you. Uh, you good both. to see you. Have a wonderful rest of your day and a, and a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Thank you. you too. Bye-bye. Get legal with it.